Split Congregation of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in Devon. We've been looking at uh, the, we looked at the theological and now we're looking at the practical implications of our new birth in Christ. And we've seen so far, uh, if, we, if you are familiar with this letter and you know what comes before, uh, the, um, uh, the, the old vices, Paul instructs us to cast off the old vices, the old ways and habits of our old sinful nature, and we need to put on the Christian apparel that uh, will identify us as children of Christ. And now Paul, we might say, looks at the, at the outworking of these, uh, these changes in us in, in three, we would say, most common relation, human relationships. We read in chapter 3, verse 10, that we are all, as Christians, as converts, we are being renewed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this being renewed includes our relationships, our interactions with each other, which, of course, have been all damaged by the fall. The marriage relationship was distorted. The parental relationship, that is the parent-child relationship, was disfigured in many ways. The professional relationship, that is the, what we would call today the employer-employee relationship, have become uh, unjust, sometimes even oppressive and unfair. Because of the fall, God's people had to be given such horrendous laws as this in Exodus 21, verse 15, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Or think of the, verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. And so these ugly, horrendous laws had to be given to God's people uh, together with chastenings like what we hear in Malachi 2. Verses 13 and 14, God says to his people through his prophet, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so these chastenings also, and these warnings, and these laws had to come to God's people because of sin. Uh, sadly, relationships have been badly marred by our sinful nature and our fall. But if we are members of the, the new covenant in Christ, we have to understand that he is taking us apart and rebuilding us, and he's renewing us and restoring us in these as well. And one of the things that we want to also hear this morning is that if, uh, if we want this to happen and we don't see these things, these changes happening in our lives, or we don't even, don't even feel the inclinations to change, but we understand that this is what God wants from us, that we need to be converted. We need to turn our lives to Christ, uh, into the hands of Christ. We need to give our lives to Christ, give our, our lives, ourselves, surrender into his hands. We need to experience that change that only he can do by his Holy Spirit. But as we look at Colossians 3, verse 18, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 this morning, we want to see this as our theme. As members of his new creation, Christ instructs us 
as to attitudes and behaviors in our relationships. We'll see in the first place the marriage relationship. We'll see in the second place the parental or parent-child relationship. We'll see in the third place the professional or the, uh, the, the employee-employer relationship. But as members of God's new covenant or his new creation, we see in the first place that God is renewing the marriage relationship. Listen to verses four, uh, 18 to 19 once again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. One of the things we want to notice about these verses is, they, is that they address both parties in the marriage, husbands and wives. And actually, we'll see this again as we look at the parental and the professional relationships. And what we have to understand by this, what we have to understand the Holy Spirit teaching us here is that for Christian relationships to be successful, both parties have to do their part. The fancy theological word is reciprocal. We have to be in a reciprocal relationship. Uh, there's a reciprocal aspect to our relationships. One has to do their part. If the other does their part, everything works together harmoniously. There are duties that are owed. There are rights that must be respected toward each other. Both must be recognized. Both must be practiced. And so take the marriage relationship, for instance. Here, first of all, the wife is commanded to submit or to be subject to her husband. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, God commands the wife to acquiesce to her husband's leadership in the home. She must acknowledge his authority, his God-given authority in the home. She must not challenge that authority. She must not use blackmail against it or threats. She must not belittle or mock that authority. She must not harshly criticize her husband and his authority. She must surrender her desire to control him, and she must humbly respect his leadership, his headship in the home. Now, to many in the world today, maybe to some of us even here this morning, uh, that uh, sounds maybe harsh, but a couple of things. First of all, remember that this command comes directly to the wife. It doesn't come to the husband. It does, God doesn't say, husbands, do whatever you need to do to make sure that your wife submits to you. This command comes to the wife, to you, from God. And it comes with this motivation. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The Holy Spirit addresses wives as Christians here. He's saying that this is fitting in the Lord. This is suitable. This is appropriate as a Christian in the Lord to, be, to submit to your husband. The command here, we might say, comes to the wife who has first submitted herself to Christ. And she desires now to live appropriately before him. And the Holy Spirit calls the wife here who has submitted to Christ to do what is right, to do what is proper, to do what is her calling as members of the household or the kingdom of Christ. Now, as you may know, some people attribute this to the Bible's what they call patriarchal bias. That is, by that they mean, boys and girls, that uh, they, some people think that the Bible promotes a society controlled by and even favors men. 
And so they would say, well, yeah, here's one more example of the, of the Bible, putting women down under men and uh, making them subject to, uh, subject to men. We won't get into that this morning too much, except to say, if you were to do an honest study of the Bible, you would find that to be absolute foolishness. Uh, God holds women and wives and mothers in very high esteem. And so we ought not to neglect that as well. Uh, the Bible certainly is not anti-woman, far from it. But at the same time, we have to realize that God, in his perfect wisdom and love for his people, he has appointed roles for each of the genders. And this goes back all the way, by the way. This is not the uh, conclusion of, say, the Apostle Paul or anyone else. This goes all the way back to the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2. And there we find, and, and this is the argument, by the way, that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, Adam was created first, and then Eve. And why was Eve created? To be a helper to man. Man, God saw, needed assistance. God saw that man was inadequate by himself. He could not fulfill his role as prophet, priest, and king without his wife, without this assistant, the suitable helper. With her, he could then fulfill his command to subdue the earth. And together, they could fulfill man's chief end, which is to worship God and to glorify him forever. But Adam was created first and the wife second to be a helper to him. Which we have to realize would not have been a problem. It would not have been a source of irritation to anyone had not sin entered the world. But sin did. There was the fall. And one of the consequences of that first sin was that, and God addresses this already in Hebrews 3.16, woman's desire would be for her husband, which if you, if, when you look closely at the Hebrew, means that the woman's desire would be always to rule over her husband, uh, but he would always rule uh, over her. Uh, and thus began what is called today the battle of the sexes, still exists today. But let God be true and every man a liar. If a woman respects her husband in the home and he loves her, and we're going to come to that now, and he loves her as he's called to, peace and joy and harmony exists in the home. It is when we try to step out of our calling that problems begin to arise. But then, very quickly, let's notice that Paul immediately addresses the husband here, giving the flip side of the command to the wife. He says, husbands, verse 19, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so husbands, let's be reminded again, brothers, this morning, husbands are called by God not merely to lead, not merely to be good providers and hard workers, not merely to be protectors in the home, First and foremost, we're called to love our wives. That is our first and foremost calling. Love our wives. And Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are to do so modeling Christ. He's our great example. And what did Christ do? He loved his bride, the church, and he gave himself up for her. So we as husbands are to love our wives. We are to make her happiness our goal. And that is every day, not just 
birthdays and Valentine's Day and Christmas and Mother's, uh, and, 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 uh, Mother's Day, whatever it may be. Sometimes the world uh, separates these things into times. Okay, it's Mother's Day, so I better show my wife or my mom some attention. God's Word says we are to love our wives every day. Every day is, is to be to, uh, made to, be, to feel special in our eyes. We are to put her interests on par, sometimes ahead of our own. We have to practice and continue as husbands. Tenderness, gentleness, patience with our wives, self-control. These are fruits of the Spirit. We have to have a lifelong commitment to caring for that ewe lamb that God has placed into our arms. She is to be to us the only one that we desire. Her entire well-being is to be our concern physically, caring for her health and, and basic needs, but also spiritually, being a godly example to her, encouraging her in her spiritual growth, relieving her as much as possible from the burdens and the stresses and the worries that too often, let's be honest, wives are left bearing in the home. Things like disciplining the children, maintaining the budget, maintaining the home, making decisions that quite often turn out to be too stressful for the wife but on her own. Husbands need to be helping and assisting in these things as well. The Holy Spirit says, husbands, love your wives. And listen to this, do not be harsh with them. And that wipes off the table immediately. Any young man who thinks, I'm going to run my home with an iron fist, and when I walk, everyone is going to tremble in the home. Uh-uh. God says, husbands, do not be harsh with your wife. We're commanded here by God not to treat our wife with any kind of brutishness, not to be cruel in our homes. And, and this, we have to remember that this comes to us especially because men, uh, as part from what they say today about the genders can be switched around and whatever, a woman could be a man and a man could be a woman, which is all nonsense. We have to remember that men, men are, are physically built bigger and stronger. And so one of the things we need to remember here, if we're ever tempted in that way, or if we're guilty of this sitting here in God's house right now, we are never, ever to be physically abusive with our wives. Never, ever. God does not take that very lightly. Read Malachi and read 1 Peter uh, 3. We're also, as husbands, in not treating our wives harshly, we have to rein in those sharp and hurtful words that we can use. We're to guard against the kind of tyranny, the kind of tyranny in the home that can break the spirit of a woman, that can cause her to question her lot in life. You know what I mean? Uh, a woman comes to the point in her life when she thinks one day, why did I marry this guy? What did I do with my life? I could have been so much. I could have done so much. I could have been so much happier. What happened? Husbands, we have to watch it. We never bring our wives to this point in life. Young men, listen very carefully. We're to avoid impatience and hurtful nagging, always finding fault, always irritating. In a nutshell, we are to be Christ-like. How Christ looks at and treats his bride, the church, so we are to treat our wives. And when husbands and wives understand these guidelines and we live by them, we pray about them, 
Peace and harmony will exist in the Christian household. When duties and rights are respected, when obligations are carried out by both parties, couples grow and blossom into the new creatures that Christ calls us to be. That's life in the new creation. Well, the second relationship that Paul addresses in the new creation is what we might call the, the parental relationship or the parent-child relationship. And again, what we see in these exhortations is that reciprocal aspect. Everyone has to do their part. These instructions, these commands only work when both parties do their duty, when they fulfill their roles, when they give to the other what they deserve. If these commands are, are carried out faithfully, a lot of the friction that we find in our homes today between parents and children can be alleviated. And so boys and girls, young people, children of all ages, listen to what God says to us. And the next time we have a little bit of disagreement with mom and dad that gets a little bit heated, wonder, okay, am I fulfilling my part of the obligation God calls me to. Both of these commands have to, to be obeyed, and vice versa, parents as well. As head of the new creation, Christ is renewing us. He's restoring parental relationships. He's teaching and enabling us to live up to our full potential. And so he commands us as to the mutual duties of both parents and children. And he addresses, first of all, the children here in verse 20. He says, children... Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, the word that Paul uses in the Greek, and that's translated children in our ESVs, refers to children who are still under the care and authority of their parents. Okay, so children who are still under the care and authority of their parents. Doesn't apply as much when you're married, you have your own home. Okay, that's not to say that you stop respecting your parents and honoring them at that point, but this specifically addresses children still under the care, living in your parents' home, still under their authority. And this can be uh, the age from, say, learning to speak from infancy till you are either an independent, independent uh, adult or when the time when you get married. One of the things that we, I, want, I always try to bring out in this is boys and girls and teenagers, young people. This is very, very important, this verse, that, that because we have to realize that God addresses you here, specifically. Again, he's not saying, fathers or parents, do what you need to do to make sure your children respect you. He says, children, right? Why is that important? So that to remind you that you may, you may never, you must never think of yourself as lesser members of the church because God doesn't see you that way he addresses you directly in his word here he commands you he lays responsibilities and duties upon your shoulders he addresses you children of all ages he addresses you as covenant members of his church to whom he has said I shall be a God to you you shall be my people and he directly charges you, first and foremost. And so we can't say, well, it's dad's fault or mom's fault that we have this problem. God directly charges you to honor and obey your parents. 
Christ commands you, his covenant children, to obey your parents in everything, always and without exception. Children are to obey their, children, their parents in every circumstance, in all respect. And if you wonder why, here's why. Because your relationship with your parents is a picture of God's relationship with his people. You are a walking parable announcing to the world, to your family members, to your church. Advertising, proclaiming God's relationship with his people in the way you respect and honor your parents. And as God's people, we are commanded to obey him without question. And so we're talking here absolute obedience. Now we know, we know the exception, of course. We know that there is only one time we may disobey mom and dad. And I'm sure the boys and girls could tell me that if I asked them. But it's if they command you to do what goes against God's word. And so, for instance, God says, hey, jump over that fence. Get me some apples from the neighbor's apple tree. Don't worry. He's not going to know. Okay, at that point, you can say, dad, I'm not going to do that. That breaks the command. That breaks the, the eighth commandment. and I'm not going to do that. Okay, but otherwise, when they ask you to do your chores around the house, do your homework, go to school, go to bed, brush your teeth, obey your parents in everything. But again, there's a flip side. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so, once again, the flip side, the other, the other party, the other side of the coin, the fathers are addressed here as the head of the home, the main authority figure, the one in the home to whom all look for leadership and guidance. Paul commands us here to provoke, not to provoke our children. Now, the word here translated provoke includes things like irritating them. And we're not talking here about the kind of teasing that fathers do with their children. That's, that's fine. We all do it. Uh, but uh, we're talking about the things that irritate them. Picking on them, frustrating them to the point of anger. Uh, condemning them harshly uh, to the point where they, they come to the point where they, they, they want to just give up. And they say, why even bother trying? There's no pleasing this man. Nothing is ever good enough. We nag them to the edge of insanity. Uh, sometimes we want to, to live vicariously through our children. You know, so where we fail at sports or where we fail in school, we expect our children uh, to, to excel and uh, sometimes we put so much pressure on them that uh, it, it's just unhealthy for them. Uh, spiritually, physically, uh, emotionally, mentally, in every way. Sometimes, let's face it, fathers can be uh, in our quest, in our desire that our children be godly, that they walk with Christ. Sometimes we can even be overly critical of them. We, can, we may even at times go too far with the strictness and the discipline. We don't know when to let that rope out just a little bit uh, that is age appropriate as they get older. Sometimes we can just set standards for our children that they just can't possibly meet. We can suppress them instead of trying to work with their individual personalities because every child is different. They learn differently. And so we expect a little Jenny to do just as good as her big brother Paul because he's a straight-A student, but she learns differently. And she hears things differently. And so we need to work with each one as individuals. Now, of course, fathers are mentioned here because they're the head of the home. But brothers, let me say this. If we allow our wives to embitter 
our children, to treat them harshly. And we do nothing about it. Understand that we're still to blame because God uh, entrusts this office to us here to ensure that our children not be treated, uh, not to be uh, provoked to anger. And so, so this is our calling as those raised with Christ, members of the new creation, being renewed into his image. We are to pursue peace and harmony in the home. Children with Christ-like obedience, fathers and parents with Christ-like protection and guidance and nurture. As Christian fathers and mothers, we are to encourage our children. We are to love them patiently. We are to set before their eyes examples of godliness. And this is what creates the environment or the setting, we might say, for children to respond then with obedience, with love and respect to one parents. Not only to their earthly parents, but also to their heavenly father. And so you're doing a spiritual work when you're loving and caring for your children. But Paul also addresses the professional relationship, the employer-employee, in verses 22 to 4, verse 1. Bond servants or slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, Paul writes this to Christians in a day, of course, and culture in which slavery was practiced. And so our ESV say bond servants. I think the stronger translation, which is slaves, is more appropriate. And during the New Testament period, it's written and recorded by historians that there were over 500,000 slaves that assumed that station every year in the Roman Empire. And slaves would sometimes be captives of war from a variety of nations. Some were traded by their own people. Some were sold because they were weaker members of their societies. Often, unwanted babies who were abandoned were raised as slaves. They were gathered from the garbage dump and they were taken to their home. You gave them a home, you fed them, and they would grow up to be your slaves. But of course, the gospel has no barriers. And so we read in chapter 3, verse 11... Here, that is in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so even though a slave might be deprived of their physical freedom, spiritually, many of them had become free in Christ. Even slave owners had become uh, Christians. In the book of uh, Paul's letter to Philemon, we, we hear about that. Now, and Paul doesn't address the practice of slavery here. He does address the heart attitudes of those involved. And again, each is called upon to fulfill their responsibilities and to respect the rights of the other. And so slaves are first exhorted to obey their earthly masters. Paul reminds them that they serve these masters only according to the earthly realm. 
This is temporary, what you're going through. This is confined to this present age. Ultimately, Christ is your true master and your Lord. And so your earthly obedience is to be a reflection of your obedience to Christ. That is, it must be thorough obedience in everything. Your freedom in Christ, he says to slaves, does not afford you the freedom of disobedience to your masters, which does not bring glory to God, nor show that you are a renewed creature who is being transformed into the image of Christ. And so whatever the duties of slaves may have been, as degrading and as unfair as it might have been, slaves were to continue in obedience to what their masters. And Paul cautions them here against doing things, because again, a marvelous understanding of human nature Maybe as employees here, we've, we've even done this. We're guilty of this. But Paul uh, cautions here against doing anything half-heartedly or doing just the minimum to avoid rebuke. Doing a job only when you're being watched so as to give a good impression. The boss looks over. He sees you working. But as soon as he steps outside, drop your tools and you're fooling around. The most trivial of tasks is to be done wholeheartedly. We might even go so far as to say that this was an act of worship, an act of serving God, a way we would bring honor to God's name. And we can easily see how this applies to us. As employees, we are to give to our employers the best of our ability. We are to give them a fear day's work for a fear day's wage. We are to respect them. We must defend their good name. Why? So that the name of Christ would not be blasphemed because of us. And so that the gospel would be advanced through us. That God may be praised through us. But then masters or employers in our context are addressed. In chapter 4 verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so the balance between the two exhortations are, again, very striking. If each one does their part, it makes it easier for the other to do theirs. Paul reminds the masters, in turn, to treat their slaves with dignity and compassion, with respect and with fairness. And practically speaking, this is the outworking of this, this would then enable them to fulfill their obligations more readily and more easily. What does that mean for us? It means as employers, we are to pay our employees a fair wage. We are to pay them on time. We are to respect their time as well. We are to respect their responsibilities to their own families, their relationships, their need to worship. And so we are to treat them fairly. And Paul gives the motivation here. Christian employers are to show fairness to their employees because they recognize that they too have a master in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He will decide if our dealings with our subordinates have been fair and just. It is his perception in the final analysis that really counts, doesn't it? Masters are encouraged to obedience in the same way as slaves because we belong to Christ and because we are all members of his new creation. Congregation, we've seen 
that in whatever role we find ourselves, at home or at work, we are to fulfill our responsibilities in obedience to the Lord. And we've seen that if both parties carry out their duties faithfully, that's when harmony and peace will result. And let's keep in mind that God never asks us to do anything that he has not done himself. Christ, for instance, can command wives to be subject to their husbands because he himself subjected himself to the will of his heavenly father. He can command husbands to love their wives because he himself loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her. He himself obeyed the will of his father and subjected himself to the authority of Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents. Christ himself became poor even though he was rich for us. He himself rules us as our master with great gentleness and patience. And so let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our master, our model, our motivation, and let us look to his Holy Spirit to enable us to live as members of his new creation. Amen.